I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the mini-series, A Litany Against Fear. As our church, like everyone else, adjusts in light of ever-evolving circumstances around coronavirus and COVID-19, we want to revisit a text from Matthew's Gospel in which Jesus offers one of his most simple yet trying commands, Do Not Be Afraid. We don't know a ton of really specific things about the 1300s, which casts a frustrating shadow over some pretty significant happenings in human history. But there's a story that goes something like this. In October of 1347, 12 ships approached the European port city of Sicily. When those on land approached the ships, they discovered nearly everyone on board was either dead or almost dead, their sickly bodies covered in erupting boils. And Sicily panicked, get these ships out of here. But it was too late. Four years later, as many as 200 million Europeans would be dead from bubonic plague or the Black Death. It may have been as much as 60% of Europe's entire population. And some researchers believe the world population was only around some 500 million people, meaning this thing may have come close to wiping out half the people on earth. Of course, we can't begin to wrap our heads around the kind of impact that thing would have on society. Paintings like this one, The Triumph of Death, which was inspired by the plague, are pretty telling about public consciousness at the time and years after. Medical science being what it was in the 1300s, there were few answers. Some scientists conjectured, I kid you not, that the sickness might be spread by the ghosts of the deceased who passed invisibly by the healthy and living, infecting them in the process. And the doctors of the era dressed like this, which seems to me like a strange decision for someone in the business of putting people at ease, but what do I know? My point is that on the sea, in the streets, in the hospitals, I can only imagine that it felt as if the world itself were unraveling. The horror of sickness has been a medium of artists and storytellers for centuries, whether it's The Triumph of Death or Stephen King's The Stand or George Romero's Night of the Living Dead or Terry Gilliam's uh, Twelve Monkeys. On and on and on that list goes. A few months ago, a painting like The Triumph of Death or stories about pandemic hysteria would have seemed almost entirely relegated to history or fiction. But now... And the thing is, we don't live in the 1300s. We live in a world of globalized news and social media, conspiracy theories, the the politicization and weaponization of everything. For some, the coronavirus pandemic is a source of debilitating fear. It's a plague movie come to life, a world where in one city, hundreds of people die in a single day, where panic creates scarcity, which creates more panic, where crazed shoppers storm grocery aisles for toilet paper. Meanwhile, others argue against everything we're hearing from scientists and doctors. This is overblown panic propaganda, they say. Despite pleas for social distancing, Floridians continue to crowd public beaches. People in Savannah organized their own St. Patrick's Day parade against state orders to keep people safe. Ordinary conversations, conversations about what's on most people's minds, at least to some extent, are tense with the threat of encroaching disagreement. On the bright side, our plague doctors look decidedly less horrifying. And if you're not interested in participating in the hysteria or contributing to the fear-mongering, what do you do? 
And I don't just mean all the practical stuff like social distancing or shelter in place, terms very few of us were even aware of until recently. Heck, I didn't even know what the dang governor's name was until all this started to happen. I mean, what's going on in us? Should we be worried? Is being worried okay? What do fear and derision and defiance do to us and to our souls long term? With that, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. There is a kind of myth that many of us take for granted, whether we believe it consciously or not. And the myth is that as a society, we're mostly getting better all the time. And the problem is, it's a myth, but it's not entirely untrue. Aspects of human culture have inarguably advanced over the years. Not perfected by any means, but some things have progressed. Medicine, for example, has gotten a lot better since 1347. Certainly since the Stone Age, uh, for example. Standards of health and living, in the Western world anyway, have progressed to, to some degree. Technology has undeniably advanced. But then... Weirdly, we're not doing so great, you know, as humans, kind of bad, actually. A recent Pew survey found that 39% of Americans claim to be more anxious than they were a year ago. Chronic depression, bipolar disorder, personality disorders of all kinds are on the, on the rise. Uh, widespread divorce, sexual addiction, things like marriage and family and sexuality, even gender, are not only up in the air, but they've become, uh, for many, sources of intense consternation. So what does that mean for those of us who follow Jesus? It's a pressing question given that Jesus talked openly and candidly about the end of existential dread, that his followers could become like him free from anxiety. Did Jesus not account for pandemics and hysteria? How did Jesus' teaching to not worry about tomorrow, for example, sound in the streets of Sicily, circa 1347? So the plan for the next little bit is to revisit a passage from the Gospel of Matthew that we've already unpacked in detail about a year ago. But I want to look at it again, examine it in, uh, in light of everything that's going on at the moment. Are you guys ready to get into it here in the studio? Yeah. yeah, there we go. In context, the story that we're about to read begins right after Jesus has been healing all kinds of sick people. In a huge crowd, there was this miraculous provision of food. It was a whole thing. And then the story shifts gears. So let's read from Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. The text goes, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now pause for a moment. That translation after he dismissed the crowd is a bit clumsy. Jesus isn't rudely kind of just sending people away. You are dismissed. One scholar I read actually translated that same line. And when he had said goodbye to everyone. So remember, these are the same people for whom Jesus was moved to compassion in the language of the text at the, at the mere sight of them. He's been healing them. He's been feeding them. He cares about them. Jesus is in the midst of seemingly overwhelming need. They're sick people, hungry people, thousands of them, the story says. And his response to that is compassion, not stress or anxiety, but compassion. And that's not his only response. Keep reading. Verse 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. 
Now, at this point in the story, um, flashback, Jesus has recently learned that his friend, his cousin, John the Baptist, and uh, a noteworthy prophet of God has been beheaded in prison. Jesus' immediate response to that news is to go and be alone with God. That's what he wants to do. We call this the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. But in that story, when Jesus arrives at his place of sanctuary, he discovers that it's overflowing with people and their needs. And rather than send them away in frustration, hey, I need my alone time. You guys get out of here. He has compassion for them. He heals them. He feeds them. He spends time with them. But notice in the story, Jesus doesn't shrug off his intention to practice silence and solitude. It's just been momentarily delayed. It's still very important. I actually find this particularly fascinating, especially in light of everything going on, because I and so many people I know often approach the spiritual disciplines with an idealistic all or nothing kind of outlook. I got up to read my Bible, but then my kids spilled something and we couldn't find their homework. So my time in the scriptures just went out the window for the day. Or we'd hoped to have a day of Sabbath rest as a family, but then something came up on the day that we hadn't planned for. We had to run an errand. So Sabbath just kind of went out the, the window for the week. But in the life of Jesus, the one from whom we're getting all this stuff in the first place, the spiritual disciplines, the lifestyle that we're pursuing, we can see that there are times when life itself throws our spiritual rhythm, so to speak, out of orbit. If ever there was a time when it would be understandable and appropriate to be alone with God, learning of some personal and intimate tragedy, the death of a family member, would be one of those times. But Jesus decides that what interrupts him demands his attention for the time being. He, his plans get wrecked, but see in the story that it doesn't just go out the window altogether. It gets rearranged. It remains a priority amongst competing priorities in the chaos of life. From what we can tell in the story, Jesus had planned to have time alone. He did not plan to spend time healing and feeding thousands of people, but life threw a wrench in that plan as life often does something we all know well enough. And Jesus updates the plan without abandoning his priorities. When the interrupting work is completed, now it's time for silence and solitude. So the story goes on. Verse 23, later that night, he was there alone, having his silence and solitude. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, Pause for a moment and remember where we are in the story. Matthew has begun to build out a sense of encroaching dread at this point in the narrative. Jesus is now being rejected everywhere he goes. John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, has been killed. It's been humiliating, beheaded in prison. It was an awful story. There's no hint whatsoever at this point that Jesus is mounting an uprising against Rome, which is something everyone expected the Messiah would do. Jesus' closest friends, his apprentices, the 12, they're still in. They're still with him. Their beloved teacher has sent them ahead by boat while he's gone off to pray and be alone with God. He does that all the time, so that's nothing new. But there in the boat, waiting for their teacher, a storm descends. Now, in ancient Jewish thinking, the sea was a symbol of chaos and evil and unrest. So in the narrative, you have these vulnerable apprentices of, uh, apprentices of Jesus out on the water. A storm sets in and their master is not there. Matthew has drawn the reader in up until now with these romantic and inspiring stories of healing and incredible teaching, acts of charitable goodness. And now it's as if for the last little stretch, he's been provoking the reader, rejection, violence, antagonism. And now here are Jesus' closest students 
alone, not spared the sea and the storm. Things seemed normal. The rhythm of life seemed like it hit a, a manageable pace. Good even. But now it's as if things are getting worse and worse. They're being swallowed up in chaos. Can we relate to that at all? But of course, the story goes on. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, uh, more literally, that's the fourth watch of the night. We think at this point they've been terrorized by this storm for uh, as much as, as long as nine hours. And remember, this is at a time when it already feels as if things have gone from bad to worse. So we can only assume they're exhausted mentally, emotionally, even physically. And verse 25 goes on to say, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. So imagine that you're discouraged. You're anxious. You're exhausted. You're already scared in an environment that you believe is inherently plagued by evil and chaos, a symbol of unrest. And a figure comes to you walking on the water. Now, to be clear, people don't ordinarily walk on water. So that's scary. It's plague doctor level scary. So in verse 27, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Which seems like a simple thing to say, but there's so much here. This is called the tetragrammaton, which is Greek for four letter word. Uh, Cam, you had to take Greek. And am I saying tetragrammaton right? <laughs> so it's on his authority that uh, I've skipped that in my uh, education and not because I can just call on him off camera. It's a Greek word that means four letter word. Now, there, these are the Hebrew letters that make up the proper name of God. Y-H-W-H. It means... I am who I am, or I am that I am, or even simpler, it means I am, which is where we get the title for God, the great I am. We pronounce the word Yahweh, but really this is just the pronunciation more scholars think is best. We're not 100% sure. Ancient Hebrew has no vowels, so that's challenging. But maybe you're thinking, Yahweh, I thought God's name was. It's a funny story about that. No one uses Jehovah anymore, but when they did, there was an interesting reason. See, over time, Jewish people stopped using God's proper name, fearing the Ten Commandment charge not to misuse the name of God. So they called him Hashem, which means the name, or more often Adonai, which means Lord. Jehovah is just the vowels from Adonai inserted into the consonants of Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H really. And since in Hebrew, Y's sound like J's and the W's sound like V's, you get the English transliteration Jehovah. Weird, huh? Anyway, the whole point is that in the Bible, God isn't just God. He has a name, a proper name, actually. His name is Yahweh. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps in your Old Testaments, that's God's proper name. Now, my Bible translates Jesus' encouragement to the disciples as, and I quote, take courage, it is I. But in Greek, after saying take courage, Jesus actually says only two Greek words, I am am. So having said all that, reframe the scene in your mind. The disciples are on the evil, chaotic, storm-tossed sea. Their hope, the Messiah, is nowhere to be found. But wait, there he is. And Jesus speaks, take courage, I am. 
God's name shows up all over the Old Testament, often coupled with the command to put fear away. Here's an example we believe Matthew had in mind. But now, this is what Yahweh says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And it's not just what Jesus says, but what he's doing while he says it. Look at this passage from Job chapter 9, which details some of the unique ways in which Yahweh, the creator God, is set apart from everything else in the universe. The text says, He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of of the sea. Now that phrase treads on the waves of the sea, you may have guessed, can be translated walks on water. Matthew is presenting the reader with something incredible here. Jesus' declaration is more than just the staggering truth that he is more than just teacher and Messiah. It is also the reason the disciples can put their fear away. Don't be afraid because I am. And the story continues in verse 28. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. I love this story personally. In verse 28, my translation has Peter saying, tell me to come to you on the water. But the Greek is actually a little bit stronger. It's literally command me to come to you. So there's this really sweet, faith-filled beauty to Peter's request. He understands that Jesus is his teacher and master and, and more than that at this point. But somehow in the midst of this incredible spectacle, Peter wants to go to Jesus on the water. So here's a flawed analogy from my own imagination. I see a group of very small children who step outside and see their dad on a huge trampoline. Uh, he's bouncing so high into the air that it seems unreal. So all of them are buzzing with excitement, fear, astonishment. Seems incredible, otherworldly, maybe even a little bit scary. They don't want to get too close because they've never seen anything like this before. But one kid's first reflex is to shout, Dad, pull me up with you. And maybe the rest of the kids are, are curious, but they're like, shoot, you, you can go ahead with that. We'll just watch. Now, of course, it's a flawed analogy, but there is a, a romanticized, faith-filled beauty to Peter's request. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And we don't know, of course, but I imagine Jesus smiling through the wind and the rain as he says, come on. And Peter freaking did it. He was walking on the water right up to Jesus, which in context is absolutely incredible. Wasn't God the only one to tread the waves in the language of Job? Yes, but remember, every miraculous thing that Jesus does, we believe, he does them empowered by God's spirit, not just because he is God per se. Jesus is God emptying himself, becoming utterly dependent on the Father. So Jesus walks on water. He calls himself I am as both a declaration of his divinity and a demonstration of God's empowerment over his life. 
that Peter, by Jesus' decree, can also walk on water is another astounding reveal in an already incredible story that disciples of Jesus can be filled with and infused by the power of God himself upon request and the gracious gifting of Jesus. They become more like God. Good grief. It's amazing. But of course, if you know the story, there's more to it than that. Look down at verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. So here is one of the apostles of Jesus. He is seeing at that moment with his own eyes, his master, the Messiah, the great I am walking on water. With a simple invitation, Peter himself follows suit. Now he's standing up on water and in the midst of all this, there's this chaotic storm going on all around him. Jesus is standing before him and even then he gets scared. Now, do me a favor, rewind just a bit and look at verse 27. As Jesus approaches the boat in full glorious reveal, he says, take courage, I am. And then what is the one thing that he asks of the disciples? Don't be afraid. We think actually that this is the single most repeated command in the entire library of writings we call the Bible. Do not be afraid. And then just a few lines later in the story, Peter is out on the water himself in what was likely one of the most significant moments of his entire life. And the text reads, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Stanley Hauerwas, theologian in his commentary on Matthew, has a great way of balancing Peter's complexity. He says, Peter is often criticized for being impulsive, for having little faith for doubting. But such criticism should not overlook that he asks Jesus to command him to come to him. Peter begins his journey across the water toward Jesus with the recognition that this is not something he can do on his own initiative. Peter's faith is little, but he at least is beginning to recognize that faith is obedience. So here's Peter, full of faith, face to face with Jesus. I am out on the water And then, just like that, afraid. In spite of it all, he gets scared. Does that remind you of anyone? It's like looking in a mirror. Again, this from another scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner. He says, in both stories, the one before this one and this one, the church disappoints Jesus. In crises, she believes that her surroundings and resources, or lack of them, are more decisive than her Lord. She believes that the world's winds are stronger than the Lord's words. Yet in both stories, the Lord uses his faulty disciples to distribute food in one and to subdue nature in the other. Aren't these two stories then church history exactly? A sovereign Lord uses, enables, rebukes, and saves a volatile church. It's beautiful. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt Now, it's easy for someone like me to read this and note that Jesus kind of seems to scold Peter. I wouldn't actually describe it as scolding. It certainly is a, a corrective, convicting word from the teacher to the student. But the correction comes second. What happens first in verse 31? Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. That's important. Jesus rescues first, then corrects. And Jesus calls him the same name he called the disciples when he calmed the storm in chapter 8. He calls him a 
little faith. And don't miss what's happening here. Matthew, the author of this biography, wants disciples of Jesus then and now to see that faith, even incredible faith, has little faith in it. Doubt, in other words, is an inevitable component of the faith journey. Even empowered disciples sink. And when you sink, not if, but when you sink, he will reach out his hand and catch you. And once again, there's more here than meets the eye. Matthew's Jewish audience would have passages like Psalm 18 come to mind, which reads, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. Or Psalm 144, Reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters. So, the story goes on in verse 32. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That's uh, incredible. So here is a man, to be clear, a human being, standing in a boat. He's surrounded by other humans, young Jewish men. All of them are monotheists, meaning they believe in one God who is not a human man, to be clear. And now they are worshiping Jesus. This is an incredible scene. Verse 34 goes on. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. End of story. So they land and anchor in this other place, a small region on the other side of the lake, and something incredible happens. How many of the sick people are brought to Jesus? The text says all of them. And how many of them are healed? Again, the text says all of them. And the edge of Jesus' cloak here in the original language is the kanaf. It's the edge of Jesus' prayer shawl, which is a, a garment worn by Jewish rabbis. Now, prophecy from Malachi claimed that the Messiah would have healing powers in, in his kanaf. And remember, uh, all the way back in Matthew chapter 9, there's a woman who, uh, propelled by belief in that prophecy, reaches out to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. So it goes from this portrait of despair and chaos and fear to a portrait of faith and healing and restoration. And here's where we'll land before we're done. It's easy to see why this story is among the most famous in the entire New Testament. People who don't know much of anything about Jesus know the story when Jesus goes and walks on the water. But this story has been very precious to the church for centuries because of the universal way it speaks to the human condition and because of the wonderful hope and reassurance woven into the text even empowered disciples sink. Yes, but over it all is the great reassurance of Jesus. Do not be afraid. I am. Now, maybe you don't feel particularly panicked by all the coronavirus and COVID-19 stuff, and maybe that's healthy, or, or maybe it's irresponsible, or maybe it's some combination of those two things. I think for me, that's where I am. I'm in some tension between both things, uh, not particularly panicked, and some of that's healthy, and some of it might be a bit naive. I can't tell yet. But all of us know what it means to be afraid, to be anxious about something. For most of us, I think, and at this time, anxiety has been lurking in our periphery these last few weeks, or it has just waltzed through the front door and it's taken up residence in our house. And it's not like we don't know why. The for-profit 
news media can generate far more clicks with sensationalized headlines and hyperbole than they can with balance and calm. We click on crazy. We click the heck out of crazy. And anxiety and outrage both love company, which is why scared people want to share their fear. Did you hear this? I read this. I heard it's much worse than we thought it was going to be. And outraged people resort to childish defiance. They want to share their outrage. A good friend of mine told me this week that her mom in the South told her, and I quote, I don't care what anyone says. I'm going to touch my face and put my hands in my mouth. That, that'll show them, I guess. And these reactions, silly as they seem, they sort of make sense. Let's face it, we are not used to being inconvenienced, certainly not to this degree. We have Amazon Prime, we have Postmates and Netflix and Instacart, we have antidepressants and legalized marijuana and booze, we have distractions and medications and conveniences, and something has come along, something unprecedented to disrupt all of that. We are, as a society, ill-prepared for inconvenience. And when we're afraid or when we're outraged, we are not exactly operating at our best. So to end, I want to offer just a few observations taken from the life of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament for our church in this unprecedented season for how we might reject fear and begin to embody a better way in these trying times. The first is that I think it's okay to say that things are bad. In a lot of ways, they really are. Admitting that something bad is happening is not the same thing as despairing, and it's not the same thing as giving in to fear or panic or hysteria. It's okay to say that you are scared, and it's okay to say that you are anxious. In the last couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of well-meaning people taking to what I'd describe as plague Instagramming which is, you know, the tendency on social media to paint everything in our lives as awesome and inspiring. Even if it's like quasi self-depreciating, it's still amazing and inspiring. And Christian leaders tend to do a lot of this. The whole, come on team, this is an amazing time to do incredible things. I'm so excited to see what God does, you know, all that. And to be sure, it's not always wrong to be optimistic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pessimistic by wiring, so I can use a little optimism. You can hear the cynicism in my voice, I'm sure. But Jesus demonstrated a vulnerable willingness to experience pain and distress, to weep, to mourn, to grieve. He was, in other words, an emotionally healthy human being. We are, as his disciples, called to, by the scriptures, to mourn with those who mourn. Now, that does not mean giving in to fear, but it does mean that we can recognize when things are bad. People are dying. People are hurting. People are losing their jobs, their livelihoods, their futures are in flux. Children's educations are compromised at the moment. I read an article in the Oregonian last week that quoted a professor at Dixie State University saying, and I quote, Things are going to be very difficult and very scary. Our economy and society will be disrupted in profound ways. And he was talking about the best, most helpful way forward, at least that he thought so. So you can read something like that in panic, or you can read that with acceptance. Maybe things will be very difficult and very scary. Acceptance without despair. Which means, and this is my second point, that we have to move away from either extreme. There has to be a tension between acknowledging the seriousness of a pandemic and everything going on in the world 
and giving in to hysteria. I'm sure you've noticed that the more popular position is to take one pole or the other. Either the world is coming to an end or this isn't even as serious as the flu. We shouldn't have to change a thing. Take Van City, our church, for example. For most of the people at our small church, from what we can tell so far anyway, information is changing all the time, coronavirus and COVID-19 are not very dangerous for most of the people in our church. But for some of the people in our church, it is very dangerous. And for many people in our neighborhood and city and certainly all over the world, it is absolutely very dangerous. And we now know that this goes well beyond the death rate conversation. It goes into a conversation about available resources, how many health workers and hospital beds and ventilators we have, the rate at which we can realistically handle outbreak, all of that. It's a very complicated conversation. None of this is to be taken lightly, but taking things seriously does not mean giving into hysterics or hoarding resources, panicking, turning social distancing measures into opportunities for self-righteousness, gluing yourself to the news cycle, obsessing over every single new update and possibility, worrying constantly about tomorrow. The idea is to acknowledge both things. Things are bad right now in many ways, at least they're bad, but that does not mean that we have to panic or become hysterical or give in to fear. But how can we live in that tension? C.S. Lewis once wrote, the great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own life or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life, meaning life is inherently chaotic. This means that how you respond to an interruption is an indication of who you really are. So what will you do with this time? I think of tonight's story and Jesus in the midst of grief and sadness, wanting to be alone and pray and with certainly with good reason. He's interrupted by sick and hungry people with needs and fears, and he's moved to compassion, then to prayer again, then back into the chaos. Jesus led anything but a life free of trauma or interruption or pain. And yet Luke, one of the biographers of Jesus noted that, and I quote, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Can that be said of me? Can that be said of you in the chaos of life? Remember that strange, fascinating story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil? The story reads as if the devil intends to prey on Jesus while he is weak and vulnerable. He's been alone for a while. He's not eaten or had water. And so the enemy shows up to tempt Jesus when he should be weak. But we also read in that same story that Jesus has not languished in loneliness or hunger, but that he has utilized that time to pursue spiritual discipline. He's been practicing what we call silence and solitude, which just means being alone in the presence of God. He's been fasting, which is a way that one prays with their entire bodies so that what could have been the place of weakness becomes instead the place of strength for Jesus. You and I have that same exact opportunity. Many of you have unexpected and frankly unwanted time on your hands. Time you got back from a lost commute or a lost work day or a lost vacation or trip or whatever it might be. 
And these scary or frustrating pockets of disruption, disruption can become vulnerabilities that the enemy will exploit, or they can become reserves of spiritual strength and resilience. Will you use that extra time to pray? Or will you make extra time in the chaos of this moment to be in the scriptures? Will you take the rhythm, the ordinary rhythms of your life and spirituality and organize a new rhythm for this season so that you can seek God's voice more than ever? To live that out, we actually need each other, which given the circumstances sounds weird, I know, but it presents for us the challenge to be creative and proactive. Family, even at a social distance. Now, none of this is what we want for our church. We're not really into the online church thing personally. We certainly don't want communities which are designed to have, you know, um, face-to-face interaction around a dinner table and vulnerabilities, sharing life and burdens, kids running around, all that kind of stuff. We don't want communities meeting through video conferencing like you're doing right now, but we have to be creative. We have to be resourceful with what we have. So in this time, ask someone in your community to set up a scheduled weekly phone call to check in. Ask how you're doing. Ask how they can pray for you and vice versa. FaceTime a close friend on a regular basis. This week, my friend Mike suggested a few friends go on a walk outside six feet apart, which sounds hilarious, but he's wisely looking for connection at a time when connection is as crucial as ever, but the outlets through which we realize them are really limited. So how can we do what we can with the time that we have? Remember, you get to choose what you will do with this unprecedented season. Will you make space for the enemy via laziness or poor decisions or fear or outrage or stress or anxiety? Or will you make more room for the Spirit of God? Finally, let me reiterate something that sounds ominous, but that I believe holds the key to freedom in this. Do not fear doesn't mean there isn't anything to be afraid of. Uh, In Jurassic World, Simon Masrani wisely observes that the key to a happy life is accepting that you are never actually in control. Seems funny, you know, it always ends up in Jurassic Park with me for some reason, but it's a great little line because it's so consistent with the ideas out of which Michael Crichton wrote his novel in 1990. Life is inherently chaotic and unpredictable. To obey Jesus and listen to his command, do not be afraid, that does not mean somehow convincing ourselves that there is nothing to fear or that everything will work out in our favor. It is the far more difficult but far more freeing ability to recognize that things might be bad, but that we don't have to be afraid. Maybe you're afraid or anxious and maybe with good reasons. For you, it could be the sickness or your livelihood or your job, your education, your kids, your plans for the next few months and and really indefinitely kind of put on hold or um, uncertain. Those are bad things. And yet, in it, if we look, we can see Jesus coming to us on the water. I am. Do not be afraid. It doesn't mean that there's no storm or that the storm isn't dangerous. But in all of that, 
there he is. Somehow in that lies the secret to resilience. Jesus coming to us on the water. I am. Do not be afraid. Now is the time to look and to find him there. We are, as a church, doing our best to adapt for the time being to new modes of getting together virtually, staying in touch, praying and taking communion together, opening the scriptures, even if it has to be online for now. We also want to continue to practice generosity so that Van City can weather this storm as well. We realize in this truly unprecedented season that many of you are hurting financially, so our humble invitation is to give out of what you have, not what you don't have. May Jesus grow us in new creative methods of generosity in this season. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.